Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 517 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 22nd of November 2020 as I record this. Today I'm talking to Holly Wharton about cultivating a successful creative business mindset and pivoting on the journey. Now Holly's been on my books and travel show talking about long distance walking solo and she combines her love of nature with business principles. We actually recorded this back in August so it's really interesting. I I recorded all my interviews up until Christmas back in back then. So it's interesting to hear how that we've both made changes since then. So for example Holly's the discussion with Holly and the interview on books and travel inspired my solo six-day walking pilgrimage which, as we all now know, was fantastic. And she really helped me with that during the interviews. I I was very much helped me take the step to go alone. She's also taken action on rebranding her business books separately to her nature and travel books. So you get to hear this conversation as we sat at these pivot points between different sides of our creative lives. And we talk about letting go of an old identity and stepping into a new one. So that might give you some insight into how these conversations emerge and how you can take action, how we've both taken action. Perhaps that's something you're thinking about as the pandemic year heads toward the end. It's only, what, six weeks until... 2021. (laughs) And it feels, I certainly feel like there's some hope for the year ahead. That is coming up in the interview. In publishing news, this is a pretty big segment this week. So much going on as we head toward the end of the year. It's like people are packing these things in before the holiday season really gets going. First of all, Draft a Digital introduced payment splitting. This new tool allows authors and contributors to collaborate on projects without having to worry about managing royalties. Draft a Digital has baked in peak simplicity to this powerful tool, assisting authors in everything from the tax interview to managing percentages for splits on any of your works, perfect for collaborations, co-authoring and box sets. So this is uh, great. And definitely if you're doing box sets, I know, and also co-authoring, this is great to have it set up so people are paid automatically. It is definitely a huge overhead when you're doing multi-author box sets or collaborations or co-writing that you have to do this kind of payment. Obviously, Bundle Rabbit has been doing this for a number of years, but Draft Digital offering this now is really brilliant. Also, I wanted to shout out to the Six Figure Author Podcast, which is one I listen to and great interview with Sarah Painter over there this week. Sarah's been on this show talking about the worried writer and anxiety and being an introvert. And in the interview with Six Figure Authors, it was lovely to hear her thoughts on long-term thinking, pricing and cover design to appeal to readers of more traditionally published books, pricing that way, not writing to market, even though she's in urban fantasy publishing slowly and still being a six-figure author. So if you have your doubts that you can make good money and be creatively satisfied outside of KU, then definitely go listen to Sarah Painter on the Six Figure Author podcast this week. Next up is 
hash audible gate as it's now being described so this is has rapidly escalated first of all ali the alliance of uh, independent authors has officially downgraded acx and they've put out a press release on that downgrading amazon acx's rating as a self-publishing service from approved to caution the change arises from concerns about income loss from amazon audible's refund and exchange policies and deteriorating customer service to authors and narrators. My German book is still stuck in the process after going in May. So what are we at? Six months? now in the process. The Alliance now has reason to believe that Amazon Audible's refund and return policies are resulting in unknown numbers of audiobook authors and narrators around the world being deprived of income. For authors wondering how to get involved, uh, go and join the group uh, started by Susan May, whose article I mentioned last week. It's called Fair Deal for Rights Holders and Narrators, and that is on Facebook, and the group is called Fair Deal with Audible. And I'll link to that in the show notes as ever, but you can join that group if if you want to get involved. The Authors Guild also has a petition, so if you don't want to get involved in a Facebook group, you can at least sign the petition. This says, tell Audible to stop charging authors for returns it's at the authorsguild.org and again links in the show notes audible is promoting this easy exchange policy as a benefit to increase its subscriber base allowing listeners to purchase and listen to entire audiobooks and then return them for a refund or exchange them for a new book all at the detriment of author earnings this is not an exchange policy but an unauthorized audiobook rental arrangement supported by authors reversed royalties and it must stop so that is the Alliance of Independent Authors and the Authors Guild. And so this is definitely moving into the big names arena now. I'm absolutely expecting the publishers to eventually take notice of this. I think I've learned a lot about publishing this week and I attended the Future Book Conference, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But I have definitely learned that they are generally not paying attention to individual sales of individual authors unless they're super big names. But the point is that uh, Susan May and groups of authors involved in there have been individually tracking things and have evidence that this is happening. And I think now the Authors Guild's involved, hopefully other author groups will get involved and we should see the publishers taking notice because of course it's impacting them and it's impacting anyone who has books on Audible, basically. So there we go. That is hash Audible Gate. You'll be able to find stuff about that. Yes, I attended Future Book this week, which was, it's normally a full day in London, and I've attended a number of times over the last sort of decade. (laughs) No, eight years. I first started going, I think, in 2012, and I've been a number of times. There was even one year where I spoke alongside Hugh Howie and Bella Andre, and that was the year they were interested in hearing from indie authors, and I think that must have been around 2014, maybe 2015, and then I stopped going, because (laughs) I stopped going when they had basically a keynote talking about print on demand by Ingram and I was like sitting in the audience going what's going on why are they talking about print on demand as if it's some revolutionary concept and that's when I understood that what I mean by future book is not what the publishing industry means by future book (laughs) 
But I wanted to go this year. It was all online because they had a very big focus on audio. And it is fascinating to get an insight into the industry. Authors don't usually attend these this event so because the tickets are quite expensive. They're like £300 or something. And so I bought a ticket and I heard some comments. <laughs> you hear things when the publishing industry thinks that no authors are listening, which I found quite fascinating and gave me great insights. But I'm, I have about 20 pages of notes on various things. So I'm only going to pick a few things that I think you will find interesting. So let's talk about audiobooks first. One of the quotes that I thought was appropriate is 2021 will be a landmark year for audio and a significant time of change. I have definitely been saying this for a while I, and I think Audiblegate is part of that. I think the reason why is because of the shift in demand and what's happening globally with subscription and unlimited streaming models. I think Audible is trying to compete with that in a way that is going against what they originally set up with this kind of a la carte and credit model. There were loads of stats about the continuing growth audiobook consumption is growing, but it's uh, not just the US and UK. It's also in European countries uh, who were attending and speaking at Futurebook. There was a Deloitte survey reported that says audiobook revenues globally are expected to pass ebook revenue by 2023, which is fascinating. And also a lot of discussion around podcasting. 60% of audiobook listeners have listened to a podcast in the last month and publishers are increasingly looking to podcasts for marketing. And there was also a discussion at Frankfurt around podcast rights within licensing deals. So if you are working with traditional publishers with audio rights, then look for this type of thing but also be encouraged that they are considering podcasting as a form of marketing. Now, there were lots of really positive stuff about all this growth. But what I found interesting was the barrier to audio adoption is A, people are put off by the narrator or the, the narration, whatever. And B, the cost of audio and lack of titles available. So I'm going to talk about those two things separately. So put off by narration. So the APA said that listeners prefer professional narrators, and that's one data point. Another survey by Nielsen said 49, and so the APA is the American, um, sorry, the Audio Publishers Association, but it's primarily American, basically, and their survey was in America. The Nielsen survey said that 49% of UK listeners prefer UK narrators, but not with a strong regional accent that is not their own. Now, there were a number of people said that many countries prefer content in their own language and their own accent. And I have said this before. I get so annoyed when books I want to listen to, often American books, but they are maybe they're narrated, then always narrated by an American male voice. And even here in the UK, you'll get female written business books narrated by an American male voice. I'm like, what is going on here? So I definitely prefer books that are narrated in a British accent, because that's the voice I hear in my head. And there was there was evidence that Scottish people prefer books narrated in a Scottish accent. And I think, and I was thinking about this from my own perspective, 
The important thing with an audiobook, generally, unless it is a performance, so I totally agree with the APA around listeners prefer professional narrators when it is a performance. So, for example, World War Z, which I've mentioned before, World War Z, that audiobook has lots of different voices and, it, and it's a performance. I also listen to audio drama where actors perform audio work. That's not what we're talking about here. But when it is content that I want... I want it, the voice to disappear. And the voice that disappears is the voice in my head. And my voice is British female. The vo if a voice in my head is an American male, I find myself pushing against that. And now there's nothing wrong with an American male voice. But I feel in my head that it's different. So I prefer a British female. So this is really interesting. And the only mention of AI all week was me asking about AI. <laughs> so I actually did manage to get a question in. The, a speaker from Zebralution, which is a German company that facilitates distribution to streaming services. And he was in discussion with Michelle Cobb, who's been on the podcast. And good honour, Michelle asked my question. And I said, what will happen with AI voices in narration? And he said, there will always be room for narrators who can add value. But people are used to interacting with AI in terms of Siri and Alexa and the various devices that you now have. Hey, Google and all of that type of thing. AI will become so good that it will be hard to tell the difference. So that's a direct quote. He said, AI will become so good that it will be hard to tell the difference. There's no way this is not going to happen. So... This and Zebralution is essentially has a lot of AI tools, I imagine, within their back end. And so very interesting to hear him say that. And I think that these statistics around people preferring an accent, uh, their own accents and their own language plays into the idea that audio will explode once we are able to get content into multiple narrator voices. So while you might have your premium product, which is, you know, made by an artisan human narrator, you might then have uh, a version which goes on to one of these streaming stores where people can change the voice. And that's what I want. I want as a consumer to be able to change the voice of the narrator in order to get the content. And if I want that, then I imagine there are lots of people who also want that. So you should be able to switch the voice to a voice you prefer as you switch your GPS to a different voice or like my husband has a British Indian accent for Siri <laughs> which is, is just lovely and so we enjoy that's a voice we hear a lot around England and so it's you you choose different voices for your AI assistance so why wouldn't you change voices for a narrator so I really see that fits with the data that came out of future book but they it was only the guy from Zebralution who essentially agreed with me <laughs> So the other thing preventing the growth in audiobook consumption is the cost and lack of titles. And this is where the streaming and subscription unlimited consumption model is transforming other markets. For example, 300% growth in Spanish audio since the unlimited streaming services arrived and 91% of audiobook revenue in Spain is subscription. So Spanish is expected to be the second biggest audiobook market after English, I guess, in the next few years. So there are huge opportunities here. I also 
loved listening to uh, a Danish publisher called Morten Hessendal from a, uh, a Danish publisher called Gyllendal. I think it was Gyllendal. Uh, and he said that digital, the digital market is a breath of fresh air. And he said in Denmark, the digital market is now 75% audiobooks, 25% ebooks. So that's really interesting. And he said the printed book has a short sales period, only three months, and then will disappear from the shops. Digital books have a very long tail. Romances, thrillers, feel-good literature sell the backlist for a long time. So that was good. I also loved him because he said, we want to protect our integrity as a publisher. We don't want others to decide what books we publish. We want to be where customers are and we want to fight against any sort of monopoly. And I was like, yay, I'm with you, Morton. That sounds like an independent author type of philosophy. So clearly an independent publisher there. And they, he even talked about setting up their own direct sales, which is exactly what many indie authors are doing in terms of that fighting against a monopoly and that publishing wide and let's have a healthy ecosystem. That was a lot of discussion on that. Also, everyone said, like a lot of the British publishers were saying it will erode our revenue model and all of these sort of France, Italy, Poland, Denmark, Sweden, all of them saying the streaming subscription model is inevitable. And I've said this before, customers want it and we need to be where consumers consume. There is a generation growing up with the excess model. They expect everything to be available in audio. And the guy from Storytel said in Sweden, fiction sales in audiobook overtook ebook sales in early 2020. So this is really positive. Bookwire says that publishers are gaining 30% of additional revenue from streaming and it doesn't cannibalise the a la carte services as they tend to be different audiences. So there is this vast audience that suddenly have no barrier to trying content as they have already paid for the subscription. And look, I know I've always said I have no problem with subscription models. The problem I have is with the, the exclusive ones. So I don't have a problem... I would be in KU in a minute with Joanna Penn and JF Penn books if it was not exclusive. So that's like I'm in the Kobo, whatever the Kobo one's called, (laughs) the Kobo streaming and unlimited services in the Netherlands, for example. I'm on Storytel. You can get my audiobooks in as many of these as I can possibly get my books into because I do believe this is the way it's all going and of course, you can get your audiobooks into Storytel, Scribd and others through Findaway Voices. And uh, hopefully they're going to add on places like Spotify and Deezer and some of these other services that we don't have yet. And I definitely want to be on all these platforms. I think audiobooks will be ubiquitous like ebooks. You have, you, you're going to have to do them. But I'm also saying, I'm not saying that you personally, the listener, should rush out and make audiobooks because at the moment it's still expensive. I think it's going to be a couple of years, let's say three years. And I think the costs are going to come down a lot. But th- th- this is definitely a change that is coming but I don't want you to bankrupt yourself creating audio (laughs) and really the point is that you need to have a backlist 
That was actually one thing that someone said. That was actually one thing they did say, which is think long term and strategically distribute as widely as possible and factor in backlist sales. It takes two to five years to see the impact. So I think that's a really important point. If you're just starting out, if you only have one or two or three books, it might not be worth doing an audio. In fact, it probably isn't right now. But if you have more of a backlist like me and a catalogue, then it's worth doing. But you still have to have a long term plan. It does not make you money immediately. Okay. I also wanted to point out the new publishing standard this week reported. If you are traditionally published and they are highly resistant to this in a lot of the European markets, you could end up like President Obama's book, A Promised Land, which has to be one of the most highly awaited books this year. It will not be available in audiobook in Sweden because PRH, Penguin Random House, won't license it for streaming audio. So it is not financially viable to create it. That to me is gobsmacking. That that PRH would say ethically, we're just, we don't agree with streaming that, and it's not financially viable in Sweden to do an audiobook unless you include streaming revenue. That tells me this is definitely something we need to think about. So licensing for streaming is coming. Check your contracts if you're traditionally published because it's very unlikely you would have licensed for streaming audio. Okay, I know this is a bit of a longer introduction, but I hope you're finding interesting. I I have all these notes I want to share with you. I'm trying to cut them down. (laughs) So the second thing is that I discovered is that traditional publishers really are a decade behind in terms of technology. I heard some truly gobsmacking things in the week. Charlie Redmayne, the CEO of HarperCollins, said there's been a seismic shift to digital bookselling. And during the pandemic, the publishing industry discovered that the things we thought we could not do online, we can. It's like they have suddenly discovered that digital is more than just an ebook version of a book. There was much talk about online marketing, which I, I was just sitting there going, I can't believe this. <laughs> and I guess that's what I felt a few years back when they introduced print on demand as something radical. But and then <laughs> there was an innovation day when one publishing company was praised for releasing books in every territory on the same day. And again, I was sitting at home on the audience kind of shouting at the screen going, why is this considered an innovation? Because this is something that uh, I've certainly been doing since 2009. When I, as soon as I was able to publish globally through Smashwords, as that's all that was able, I was able to do at the time because Amazon KDP was only open to US authors at the time. So I went on Smashwords and I was instantly available all over the world. I think it, we need to pat ourselves on the back a bit because I feel like there are so many things that we take for granted. I truly thought that the publishing industry knew this, that they knew this was possible. But it seems like they've only just discovered this is possible because this company, I won't name them, but they were lauded as some innovative publisher. And they actually said, this is something publishers don't do. So it was truly new for them. And indie authors have been doing it for over a decade. I checked my dashboards and I have sold books in 159 countries. Now, and it keeps ticking up, if you've noticed, if you've been listening over time, it keeps ticking up. So that's another sale in another country. And if my books were not available in these countries, people would not be able to buy them. And that is true. So again, if I, I think I assumed that if you sign a contract for Worldwide English, that they really did publish in worldwide English, but they don't. And so this to me is fascinating. And 
maybe you're listening to me going, well, why didn't you know that? I think it's because I don't come from the publishing industry. I've never been traditionally published by a British publisher or an, an English publisher. And so I just don't know the inside of what traditional publishing is like. I come from the tech industry. I come from 13 years implementing systems in global companies from day one. I get, and I guess because my mum took us to Africa when I was eight, I've always, and I lived, I've lived all over the, the world really, and I just have this always international view of the world. And it was just weird for me to sit there realising that most of these publishers didn't see beyond the physical high street in Britain. And what I felt was that I think they might now see the future, which might well be global. So please, if you sign a deal with a publisher, only sign for the limited territories they actually intend to publish in and do the rest yourself. And if you have signed publishing contracts, please go and get them out, dig them out and check where you are actually published and then go online and publish yourself in other markets. And always publish globally on the same day. Just don't get it when people don't do that. I certainly as a reader get very upset when I see books that are marketed online or I listen to a podcast and I go onto amazon.co.uk because I have been a Kindle reader for over a decade and basically I can't buy it because of the territorial rights and indies we have a real advantage here so please take advantage of that. And then finally, the pandemic has caused a shift to digital purchasing in territories that weren't doing it so much before. And they specifically mentioned India and also Australia, which was interesting to me because I've been selling digitally in Australia for a long time. And But I have struggled in India. And so this is exciting. I have, I first, I've, I love India. I've travelled to India a number of times. I've put it in my books. Uh, I, I love it. I love the country. I feel very at home there. And it's a huge English-speaking market. And I just looked up the latest data. A hundred 125 million Indians speak English, and those are the educated middle class Indians with money to spend. Some of you might be listening. And that is more than double the UK population, not even the reading population. That is double the whole population. It's about five times the size of Canada or Australia. So that should be a big market for us as English writers. And if you do have insight into how we can do more to reach Indian readers digitally, please do email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. I am very keen to do that. What The one thing I have done is started advertising on BookBub directly to India. That has been traditionally with BookBub, it's been quite difficult to find target authors, but I'm willing to spend money to try and get more visibility in India because it's, I think, a potentially interesting market. The problem we have with India right now is that if my ebooks are priced at a reasonable level, but our print books are totally ridiculously overpriced. If you go and check, because essentially Amazon doesn't have printers there, so you can't do a KDP print at a decent price and Ingram also the same. So I would really, and I have tried using various print on demand services in India, but it's just not been financially viable. Yeah, I'm very interested in that. Okay, so the action for you guys in all of this stuff is, are your books available in all markets as ebook, audiobook and print on demand? Or if you're not ready to invest in audiobook, then have a plan for three years time. (laughs) 
I think. (laughs) And have you priced according to the specific currency market as much as you can? So, for example, have you gone on to Amazon.in and had a look at the best-selling authors in your category and adjusted your prices accordingly? Because you are not going to sell in any market unless you are priced according to that market. And I find that some people in some countries assume that uh, exchange naturally occurring exchange rates will price their book in the right way, but they won't. There were also a lot of uh, discussion around publishers considering direct sales models, which again is something many indies do. I've certainly sold direct again for over a decade on various platforms. And now I use services like Payhip and very excitingly, BookFunnel has audiobook delivery in open beta at the moment. And so that should hopefully be available in 2021. So we can uh, sell audiobooks in a more effective manner directly. And then of course, you get to keep more of the royalties, but you also get to keep the data of the customer. So lots to think about, but I'm certainly grateful. And I did say thank you officially to uh, Molly Flat at the Future Book and the bookseller and it gave me some real perspective about how early we really are in the digital journey. I think I take for granted so much that everyone knows all this. I think everybody understands all of this and I can't figure out why people aren't taking action. And then I realise that not everyone has this global digital online perspective, but they don't. So be encouraged. Like I am reinvigorated about my own mission to empower authors with the knowledge to make educated decisions about your creative future. And in our bubble, it's hard to see that most authors, most creatives, most publishing industry people don't understand this stuff. They're just in their little country bubbles. And we are empowered to create and sell globally and digitally first and market online. Oh my goodness, this is just the best time to be an author. That was a bit of a longer intro, but I hope you found it interesting. Uh, In my personal update, I've been working also really hard on Your Author Business Plan, which is now on pre-order on a number of the platforms. And it will be released on the 10th of December 2020 as an ebook, a paperback and a workbook edition with the audiobook available as soon as I can get that up. I'm going to narrate it myself. I'm going to sell it direct to you. So I hope it's going to be out before Christmas directly from me. And then you'll be able to get it on the various audiobook stores in January. So my plan is to get that my plan is to get your author business plan ready. So you can plan your year ahead. So yeah, I'm really excited about that. And we're still locked down here in the UK. So I've just been with nothing to do except walk and work. So very excited that I'm going to have two books out in a couple of weeks. Tree of Life will be out on 9th of December, the day before and then your author business plan on the 10th. I figured why not? These are generally two different markets. And um, I got my Tree of Life proof copy. It's beautiful. Thanks to Jane Dixon Smith, who's my designer. I just are really happy with this cover. It's lovely. And I'm getting some good feedback from my ARC readers that I have surprised them. So I'm happy about that too. I didn't want to write just another book about the Garden of Eden that was not a surprise. So I'm pretty thrilled to have two books on in two different brands out in the same week. I'm definitely taking some time off in 2021. <laughs> when we can. Okay, so thanks for your emails and tweets and no comments this week because my comments are broken on the creative pen. Some automatic update broke comments, but 
whatever, you can still email me, Joanna at The Creative Pen, if you have a comment, or you can tweet me at The Creative Pen and also comment on YouTube if you like. So thanks to Margaret, who sent a lovely picture of her in a gardening hat saying, here I am listening to your podcast while gardening in Byron, Georgia. Thanks for educating and inspiring indie authors. I, I hope you've had some education and inspiration this week, Margaret. I certainly feel I've been trying to give it. <laughs> Katerina Meyer said, listening to the show, your podcast is the perfect lockdown friendly activity and sent a lovely picture from a winter walk. Okay, and a couple more. True Crime Detective on YouTube, who is the author Caroline Mitchell. Hi, Caroline, who also writes fantastic books. And Caroline says, great podcast. I'm an author turned YouTuber too. Your podcasts have always been a huge inspiration, but this one was timely. So yes, if you are researching crime novels, go check out True Crime Detective on YouTube as Caroline shares lots of interesting things there. Jacqueline Rowe says, this was incredibly helpful, the Meg interview. I loved how I'm now thinking how to build and add value to my readers through not only YouTube, but also multiple streams of income. Brilliant. And finally, Angelia Irizari says, oh, how exciting. I'm such an iWriterly fangirl. I'm really glad you enjoyed that. Can't thank all of you trailblazers enough. I started following you way back in the right publish repeat days. You, Johnny, Sean and Dave uh, are the go-to folks. And now groups such as the Creative Indie, SPF, 20 Books to 50K, Six Figure Authors, iWriterly, Jenna Marici, Sasha Black and Paige Nomad. I thought you'd all like that list. These are my go-to folks that I've added to my arsenal without whom I wouldn't be here today pursuing my dream. And also, congrats to Meg. I pre-ordered the Cyborg Tinkerer on Audible and can't wait for it to come out. So I I love that comment from Angelia and because I feel, and if you don't know what the right publish repeat days are, that was a book that Johnny, Sean and Dave wrote uh, a few years back. They have the Story Studio podcast, if you're interested, but they used to have the self-publishing podcast. And it this is, again, how I feel about where we are in the independent author journey things change, things move on, things shift, and we have to keep looking towards the future. And uh, I am, I was going to announce this this later, but I am doing my AI thing next week. And in fact, I think I'm going to make it much bigger. It's not going to be a, this is the current state. It's going to be more like a thought idea, a sort of thought experiment or the next decade. So what the 2020s are going to be like and how AI and technology is going to impact us. So that's coming up next week. I'm thinking a lot about that. And that kind of relates to this because I feel like I've known Johnny, Sean and Dave for a decade. (laughs) We were all together at the beginning and now I'm looking forward to the next decade. So I'm so glad you guys are here to join me. You can tell I'm pretty excited today. I'm quite fired up by a lot of the things that are going on. So today's show is sponsored by Drafter Digital and I'll play a word from Kevin Tomlinson in a minute. This type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing but my time in creating this show is sponsored by my patrons and in fact next week the AI show is definitely sponsored by my patrons. I really appreciate your support on Patreon. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show for years and thanks to new and returning patrons this week. Dee Kenner, Melissa Green, Marianne Worley and Warren. Read. I really appreciate your support. It demonstrates you find the show useful and want it to continue into the 2020s. (laughs) 
you can support the show with a couple of dollars a month, less than a coffee a month. And I do drink a lot of coffee. In fact, I have a big mug here, which is almost finished. <laughs> so you can support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, here's a word from Draft to Digital, and then we'll get on to the interview. Hey, this is Kevin Tomlinson with Draft to Digital. So if you've ever co-authored a book or tried to build a box set, you know the biggest pain is how to split up the royalties. That's why we at Draft to Digital have built D2D payment splitting. We've made it easy for you to share payments with other collaborators on your projects in whatever percentages you prefer. Right from the setup of your book, you can invite participants, agree on who gets paid what, and go. DDD takes care of all those pesky details like tax interviews and making sure everyone gets paid on time. And of course, you continue to own the rights to your work. So, get started on your collaborative project now at drafttodigital.com. We've made it easy for you. See you there. Holly Wharton is the author of 17 non-fiction and self-help books about business mindset and personal growth, as well as on walking and the wisdom of trees and nature. She's also the host of the Into the Woods podcast. Welcome, Holly. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to talk to you. So first up, tell us a bit more about you and your diverse business career and how you <laughs> got into writing and publishing. <laughs> I think in hindsight, it was probably obvious that I would always end up here, but it, it obviously didn't seem like a straight path when I was doing it. So I've been self-employed since 1999. My first business was when I was living in Latin America, a business partner and I owned eco hotels in the jungle in Mexico. And so that was my first business for about 10 years. And then I quit and moved to England and completely re rebooted my life and didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I trained as a coach and I started working with coaching and then it moved into business mindset coaching. And I started writing my first books. And at the same time, I really got into walking here in England. And then it got to the point where I just realized I just wanted to be writing. I really enjoyed writing. And so I just quit doing client work and moved to writing full time. And I do have author clients that I work with, but I'm no longer doing the business mindset work. So when, where are you from originally? California. So you've, <laughs> you've moved all over the place. Yes. And, and so what year was it when you finally said, right, I just want to write full time? That was, I would say a couple of years ago. Yeah. So I think it'll be two years in October, November, thereabouts. And I love that. And we're going to come back to the development and pivoting and all that, because I, I find that fascinating. But let's start with the mindset stuff, because you do have a book, Business yep. Beliefs, which yes. is all about how to upgrade your mindset, overcome self-sabotage, achieve your goals and transform your business and your life. It's a good one. Uh, <laughs> so I wanted to start because you do come from that background as well. What are some of the most common mindset issues that authors in particular face? I would say one of the biggest ones is value and self-worth. Am I good enough? Is my writing good enough? Is my writing good enough to sell? That's one of the biggest mindset issues I saw with business owners, and it's one of the biggest ones I see with authors as well. A lot of people want to write, they love writing, but they may not press publish or they may publish but not market it as aggressively as they could because they're scared of visibility. They're really scared of getting out there and really putting their book out there and getting it into the hands of readers who have no idea who they are. And as we all know, well, online readers aren't always 
kind in reviews. And I think a lot of people are scared of bad reviews as well. Oh, you've just hit some good ones straight away. So <laughs> you said to a couple of things that you said good enough to sell. Yeah. And this is huge because I've read a number of your books and we all write because we have something we want to say. Mm-hmm. And yet that might not sell. And some books that people love don't sell very many copies at all. So how does the value and self-worth aspect go into the good enough to sell versus the need to put it into the world? Mm. So you can very easily put your writing into the world for free by writing a blog post or a series of blog posts. And I think that's a really easy start for a lot of people because no one's paying for it. So if they don't enjoy it, they haven't lost any money and it's easier to put yourself out into the world that way with your writing. But I think something changes once you start charging for your writing because people obviously do expect a certain level of professionalism in the writing and a certain level of editing and quality. And that's where, again, that I'm not good enough belief can pop in and and stop us from publishing. And then the other thing you said is being scared of visibility. And this is definitely something that I've come up against in myself. I was quite surprised about when I looked at my own mindset around marketing my fiction. Mm -hmm. And that's what it came down to in the end. I I have had, I've always called it fear of judgment, Mm -hmm. as in what if people, people can get inside my head if they read my fiction. And that's that scares me because I feel like they will judge me mm. and that stops me. But th- And that has made me scared of visibility. And that ties into what you're saying around self-worth. It's what if I become more visible as my fiction self and then people don't like it. So how do we move forward on these things? Because I'm clearly not the only one who feels this way. No, absolutely not. <laughs> I think it's pretty common. It's, it's very vulnerable to put yourself out there as a writer. Whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, you're opening up and you're sharing a part of yourself that's very intimate. And I think for me, I had practice in vulnerability in, in terms of writing blog posts and my podcast. I share a lot of really personal stuff in my podcast. So I think I had some opportunities to build my vulnerability muscle, but it still felt like a much bigger leap when I started putting my books out there. So I think we can start by practicing with smaller things to build that muscle and then make it easier. That's a really good point. And in a way, I have been doing that with nonfiction. I look at the first things I wrote back in 2008 online and it was very businessy and there was nothing personal. Mm. And I didn't really share a personal introduction on this podcast for sort of four or five years. And so maybe that is the thing with my fiction. I've started the Books and Travel podcast, which you're, get, you're mm. coming on to, to talk in, from a different angle as, as well. But maybe it will just be time and sharing in different ways that helps I think so, because I think the more that we open up and the more that we share personal stuff, the easier that it gets. I've just re-released second editions of all of my business mindset books this year. I'm still working on releasing the last two. But one of my problems with the first editions was that I wasn't sharing enough of myself. I didn't share enough personal problems and personal blocks and personal fears. And so in the second editions, I've been very mindful of adding lots of personal stories so people can see just how far I've come and how many problems I had myself marketing myself as a coach, despite having 10 years of solid business and marketing experience. So I think 
that's really helped. I got to the point where because I'd shared so much on my blog and my podcast, it was much easier to insert those personal stories into the second editions. But they weren't, those stories weren't there in the first editions. And that is a key to writing nonfiction books that people love yeah. because anyone can write a sort of how to do this or how to do that and listicles, but it's our personal perspective that will bring a book alive. Mm. Absolutely. And it's the personal perspective that will help your authors to connect with you. And I, I feel as I, I talk about artificial intelligence a lot and the fact that we, you can't beat the machines at the end mm -hmm. of the day, there's a lot of discussion on how automation and all of this stuff is going to change the workplace even more. And, and we have to focus on like doubling down on being human and our flaws are what make us human, right? So if people feel like I, I can't possibly share how some of the things that I feel vulnerable about like how do people start in that little way is it blogging or podcasting or is there a, a way that they can do it in a sort of non-threatening environment I think absolutely practical experience helps because I was a business mindset coach and I worked with certain techniques that help you to reprogram your mindset at the subconscious level. I would say that stuff really helps too. Now that's an, it requires an investment of time and money, but using techniques like EFT or tapping, Psych K, those things can really help you to reprogram your beliefs, which will just make it so much easier for you to take the action. As you say, or w working with a an external person in whatever way. I, I definitely, I found with this podcast, actually, even as we're talking, I do things quite naturally on the show now. And a conversation I had with Mark McGuinness, who was also a creative coach earlier on in the pandemic, just really helped me move forward. Sometimes mm. it's just talking about it with someone else, isn't it? It gives you a new perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you also, so coming back to value and self-worth because money and success mm. and the value of our work are key issues for creatives and authors like people either generally people either want some kind of literary prize or critical acclaim and or they want money sometimes a little bit of money and sometimes lots of money so <laughs> but I also feel like people think they want it and yet they resist it if they don't do the marketing or, or whatever. Mm. So how, how, do, how can we decide what we really want and then take that action? I think it's getting clear on what lifestyle you want for yourself. What do you want your ideal life to look like? And what do you need to do to get there? So if you have an, another income stream that you're really happy with, whether it's a business or a job or whatever, and you're happy to keep on doing that, and you don't care if your books bring in money, that's important to know. On the other hand, if you absolutely hate your job or your current business and you really want your books to become your full-time income, that's you've got to start planning for that. And you've got to know what your goals are and what kind of lifestyle you want to live so that you can know what goals to create for yourself and how to create the action plan to achieve those goals. And I, I feel like par partly it's what will you give up to achieve that goal? You, yeah. you can't have everything, right? Yeah. Yeah, you've, you've got to know what your priorities are because there are going to be some sacrifices. There are going to be some things that kind of fall away that maybe you can't do in the meantime because you're working towards that goal. You've got to know what you want and you've got to know how important it is to you because there are so many things that I would love to do, but they're really low priority because I just don't have the time because other things are more important. Yeah, like this AI thing. I really, earlier in the year, I was like, I could have a business talking to businesses about AI and creativity. Mm. Like I could totally do that. I would fit in that world. And then I looked at it and went, no, I just can't. I just mm. don't want to do that. 
in exchange for the things I want to do Mm. in terms of writing more fiction, but also more spiritual nonfiction, uh, Mm. something. I don't really know what it is, but... (laughs) Mm, I like the sound of that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, well, maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's making this, you have to make the space to achieve something that you might not know what that is yet. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to give yourself the time and the space to let that come in and become a real thing and, and a part of your life. But I think that's hard as creatives because we're so creative. We have so many ideas. There's so many things that we could do. And you've really got to narrow it down to the things that you want to focus on and the things you want to make a priority because there are so many. I have so many ideas for things. I can't take action on everything. Exactly. And do you think we're recording this in August 2020? Still, there's a global pandemic going on. Mm. And But do you think that the pandemic has shifted things for people and in terms of what they want to achieve? Absolutely. I think it's given people a different perspective of what life might be like from now on. Obviously, I hope at some point we're going to come out of this and come to the other side, but it's shaken everything up. For me, it's really pushed me to create more income streams for myself in terms of my books. I've completely switched up my publishing calendar this year because some of my plans got canceled due to the pandemic. But more than anything, I realized I just needed more options, more income streams for people to give people opportunities to give me money (laughs) because I don't want to rely on just the one book or just one thing. I really felt the need to branch out with my writing. That's interesting because you talked before about turning off the income streams around coaching. So (laughs) how did you resist the call of what could be easy money in terms of just offer offer your services and you you could make that money very easily? How did you make that decision? Because it's, you know what? It didn't even occur to me. And that's interesting because charging an hourly rate for coaching can be really good money. It's a big chunk of money. It's many books in one hour. But it didn't even occur to me. My first thought was, okay, what can I write to get out there? What's easy for me to write? Because I'm just so focused on making a living from my writing. I didn't even think about going back to the coaching. That's really fascinating. You mean you didn't think about it until now when I suggested it? Yes. <laughs> So that is fascinating because I think it's easy to reach for services, but what you've done is double down on the products and the assets. Okay. So you said, what books would it be easy for me to write? So how do you determine what is easy for you to write and make money (laughs) at quickly? So for me, nonfiction is easy because that's what I do. I've got a novel that's on the back burner because it's my first novel. It's not easygoing and it's not pretty. So that's been pushed to the back. I had this idea earlier this year when I was looking on different categories for my books. I saw the the Kindle short reads categories and I was like, oh, that's interesting. What is that? And they've got the Kindle short reads, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 60 minutes. And I thought, oh, wonder how I could create a series of short books. So I grabbed my podcast transcripts, picked five of them and made them into short reads books. Obviously I did a ton of editing and I added a lot of things but those were really easy to write and people have really liked them because they're short, they're easy to consume, they take about a half an hour to read and they get really solid ideas of things they can do to improve their lives. So that was one thing that I really enjoyed doing. It was super easy for me to do. 
And is business beliefs one of those? No, business beliefs is not one of those. Business beliefs is the, that was my very first book. So that's the second edition of my first book, but that is a longer book now. The original one was quite a bit shorter, but I added quite a bit to it this year with the second edition. So what are those short books then? So they are, they're called Into the Woods Short Reads. That's a series. I've got some, one that's called How to Add More Adventure to Your Life, How to Let Go of Toxic People in Your Life and Mind, things like the How to Practice Self-Care, even if you think you don't have enough time, things like that. So like really easy self-help personal development stuff, all based on podcast transcripts. So that's what made it so easy. I was repurposing content that I already had. That is fascinating. <laughs> I've thought about that so much with this podcast. <laughs> I keep going, oh, I just can't face it. I cannot face going through the backlist. You have 350 episodes or something. Yeah, like. I think 369 went live this week. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. But no, that's really interesting. And that you basically, because I did this at the beginning of the pandemic in kind of March when it hit the UK, I, w- I did that sort of, okay, I need more income streams. And my first thought was create some online courses because they Mm. are a higher ticket Mm -hmm. and there were some things that I but I did shorter ones as well so Mm. similar in one way but different in that these were they would sell to fewer people but they'd be higher ticket but equally (laughs) they only make money for the time that I run the courses a lot less than books yeah so fascinating that you decided to go that way (laughs) (laughs) I love that Uh, I do want to just come back on money because I still feel like this is such a big deal for creatives that almost people push away money Mm. because they feel like in some way it's not compatible especially with fiction like I think fiction writers in particular maybe have an issue with money so if people how do people know they have an issue with money that's a good one you have an issue with money if your prices of your books are really low or you're giving them all away for free if you feel sick at the thought of increasing your prices if other people have said to you why your book's so cheap and you just can't even imagine raising the price obviously you don't want to be selling your books for crazy amounts but if your books are consistently priced much lower than similar books of the same genre, I would say you might have an issue with money because you're devaluing your work. You're looking at other people's books and saying, oh, those are worth X amount of money. Mine, I've got to price like half that or lower because they're just not as good. And also maybe I was thinking about this earlier. I don't think I have a problem with money. I like money. (laughs) (laughs) I Uh, I love money. I enjoy money. And I can say all those things because I've practiced over the years. Uh, But it's funny because I feel like the pandemic has also brought a hell of a lot of these uh, online summits and... uh, Talk, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And talks and the things that I used to charge for speaking at as a professional speaker and now everyone's asking it for free and Mm. at the beginning of the pandemic I did a couple of months of it because it was the pandemic and now it's is this the new normal and I feel like the that a lot of writers a lot of creatives are undervaluing their Mm. time in doing all these basically speaking and services for free right Mm mm-hmm Yeah, your time is your time. Obviously, if you're doing something online, you don't have the travel to get to the event and get home. It's as an introvert, it's less stressful, but still it's your time. So if you're going to charge to speak live, why wouldn't you expect to receive compensation for speaking on something that's virtual or recorded? You're still giving your expertise. 
Yeah. And obviously this to me is marketing. Yeah. When it's to to a sort of group of just a hundred people or something, this show goes out to 15,000 people. And so it it has validity in a different way. But if you're just speaking at at an event that is smaller, yeah, I I agree. I, I think this is important. And I think it's become more important with everyone thinking it's so easy to do these online talks. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, and I'm basically now saying, right, I'm just not doing them because I burned out. I've I've burned out from pandemic speaking. (laughs) (laughs) But but I do, um, I want to get into the book. So you did these books really quickly and you do have this great resource on your site called the Definitive Guide to the Workcation <laughs> Weekend, which I think is brilliant, where you achieve a lot in a few days. Yes. So if people do want to produce books more quickly or they want to achieve something quickly with time management, what is this idea of a workcation weekend? Oh, it's my favorite thing. <laughs> It's my favorite thing. And the pandemic really messed me up with this because I couldn't go on workations for a while because accommodations were closed. But what I do on the workation weekend is I give myself the time and the space that is dedicated to writing. So I go to a hotel. I used to always go to the same hotel. I stayed one night or two nights, check in early, check out late the next day. And I just work on one project and I hyper-focus on that one project the entire weekend. And it is glorious. (laughs) It's just so much fun. I really enjoy it. I mostly use workations for writing, but in the past I've used them to create online courses or rebrand my website or things like that. So you can use them for anything, but I, these days I mostly use them for writing. So do you, so given that most people now are at home how could they rejig that to towards being at home <laughs> Oh, see, for me, it's all about getting outside of my normal work environment. I can write from my office, I can write from my garden, but there's something magical about getting outside of my normal environment to somewhere else. And hotels are opening up now. Airbnbs, TripAdvisor's FlipKey website has places. I find it really useful to just go hire a shepherd's hut or a something and and go somewhere outside of my normal environment. That's what works for me. If other people can't do that, then I would say get out of your normal home environment and work somewhere else. If you normally work in your office, go work in your garden, go work from another room in your house, or go work from a cafe. That does not work for me because it would be just sensory overload for me, but it works for a lot of people. I know you used to work from cafes. I don't know if you still do. I went back the other day uh, mm. to my cafe and they used to open really early. Well, say really early, but for British people, 7am <laughs> is a kind of early <laughs> opening. So I used to be there when the door opened and by the time people would come in on their commute mm. and pick up coffees and stuff. So there weren't many people in there until about half past nine when people would turn up with their babies and stuff. Mm. So I normally got a couple hours good writing there, but I went back the other day and they're opening later now because mm. nobody's commuting. And it, I, I did one session and, and it just I it was just it wasn't it didn't yeah. feel right and it yeah. was I think also there's still this residual fear probably mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's call it fear but the idea of a hotel room I think is really interesting and obviously if people can't uh, afford the budget there then as you say doing it within your own home but probably the key is just making sure you're not doing anything else right yeah yeah that to me the key is on one hand, finding a different place to work from my normal working place. But the other key is dedicating that time just to the project that I've selected. 
and not looking at anything else. I don't look at my emails. I don't look at any other work. I don't write blog posts. I don't think about my podcast. It's just the project that I've chosen to work on. And I'm dedicating the time and the space to that project. And there's something just magical about that because you're giving yourself the space to to do this thing that's important to you. And you're also like the, like you said, these short pieces of work. So mm. for nonfiction writers, short nonfiction, like my, the book that makes me the most money with nonfiction is how to make a living with your writing. Mm. That's 27,000 words. You can yeah. do that in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And with fiction, it could be a short story, a novella, whatever. So I think you're right. I, I have never done that. I have been more of a sort of three to four hours a day consistently Mm. for the first draft period. And I've never tried that, but it's Mm. very interesting. It is. It works really well for me. I'm aware that I'm privileged in the sense that I don't have children. So it's easy for me to take a weekend a month or two weekends a month and do this. And also I'm, I have high functioning autism formerly known as Asperger's. So my brain is really uniquely focused to hyper-focus on one thing for many hours in a row. And so I know like, I can work on one thing for eight hours and not be distracted by anything. (laughs) And I think a lot of people can't do that. So this is something that works for me. I think other writers need to find what works for them. Yeah, absolutely. So I did, I am reading your Alone on the South Downs Way book Mm -hmm. at the moment. And you're obviously you're going to come on my books and travel podcast to talk about long distance walking. So we're not going to talk about the topic right now. But I am interested because I know many people want to write travel. It is a travel book. It's obviously walking a particular way in the UK. But I wanted to ask, how do you write those as you travel? Are you dictating or how are you doing that? No, I don't like dictating. It doesn't work for me. So what I do is I bring my iPad mini with a, one of those little keyboard things, a portable keyboard. And every night after I have my dinner, I sit in the pub or the restaurant or wherever I'm staying. And I just type up that day's chapter and I write as much as I can about what happened that day. I make notes of stuff I want to add. And by the time I get home, I've usually got at least 20,000 words written. And so I've got a really good starting point for the book. I love that. I totally want to do that. I'm going to model you on these (laughs) these books. Well, because I was reading it going, how do you, so is it, do you just remember all the things that happened during the day? Because I think that would be my thing. Yeah. It's like you're walking past all these things. How do you yeah. remember it by the end? Of the- I remember it because I sit down with my iPad and my guidebook and I look through the route that I walked that day and I think, oh, when I walked, when I turned that corner, I saw that thing. And then when I walked past that field, I saw that thing. And so I use the guidebook to, and the maps from the guidebook to refresh what it was that I experienced that day. Ha. Yes. And um taking pictures, I guess, as well. Yes, absolutely. I take so many pictures that I don't ever use, except to jog my memory of stuff that I saw, whether it was something weird or a cute sheep or I don't know, you know, just all (laughs) kinds of stuff. (laughs) Do you, uh, and the other thing, because I've always thought, oh, I can't possibly do this because I never know the names of plants and things but I've discovered that you can use Google Lens on a a plant. Do you do that? Um, I'm actually really good with plants. I, when, when I went to university, my, before I changed to an English major, my, I went in studying horticulture. So plants have always been my thing. But there are apps that you can use. I think one of them is called PlantNet. You scan a foot. It's like 
Shazam for plants. Like you scan a <laughs> photograph of it and then it uploads and then it tells you what plant it is. So yeah, so there are all kinds of apps and things. So I also take a lot of photographs of just wildflowers so that when I'm describing the trail later, I can be like, oh, there were these wildflowers and those white things and these purple things. And, and I can name them because I remember what they are because I've got the, the photographs there to jog my memory. So I take tons of pictures of just little details as well. Good tip. And I think that is the key for any kind of travel writing is detail, isn't mm. it, really? Yeah. Yeah. So I just take loads of pictures. Don't ever upload them online. No one ever sees them. They're just to jog my memory. Good. And yes, yeah, so coming to nature, you write now a lot about nature and yes. self-care and your most recent book is about the wisdom of trees, which is quite an, uh, an unusual topic, I think, but given <laughs> your sort of business, uh, other business books and mindset and things. And um, obviously many writers tend to lose themselves in the computer and much of our work is even more of our work is online than ever. So mm. how can we balance the connection with nature with getting work done? Get outdoors. I know that's not everyone's thing, but give it a try. So whatever you like, just find what you love in nature, whether it's cycling, walking, hiking, backpacking, camping, whatever, even if it's just working in the garden. One of the things that's been an amazing change about the lockdown for me is that we've had so many beautiful days, with the exception of last week, which was hellish. <laughs> But I've been working from the garden most days and I love it. And I don't have the biggest garden. It's very small, but it's just been so lovely to be outdoors. And I've got my tomato plants next to me and I've got flowers and things. And it's just being outdoors makes work so much easier. Even if it's, I've got to plow through my inbox because I've been ignoring it for a couple of days. Everything's easier from the garden. So <laughs> find what works for you, but try to get outdoors. It's really it just transforms everything. Yeah, even just the air. <laughs> Sometimes mm. I say to Jonathan, I just need some fresh air and it makes yeah. a real difference. So I do hope that people have been managing to do that a lot more. Just tell us about the wisdom of trees. Like, How did that book emerge? Okay, so that book is a complete and total departure from everything else I've ever written. <laughs> and it might be a bit woo-woo for your audience. I was given the idea by a yew tree. So I talk to trees and they talk back. And I was on this forest bathing meetup a couple of years ago. And one of the things we had to do was go find a yew tree and hang out with it. And, and I went up to the yew tree and I'm like touching its bark and I'm looking at it. And, and it says, you're working on this novel and it's really hard. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I've, I've realized True. that. <laughs> And it says, we have another idea for you. We have a book that's uh, going to be a lot easier for you to write. The trees have stories and people need to hear them. And this is a book that you could write and it would be a lot easier for you. And I thought, okay, I'll give it a try. And so I spent almost a year collecting stories for this book and then you know, turning them into a book, which is now my best-selling book. So that's where um, that came from. And that is fascinating. And you say that's your best-selling book, which yeah. means that however it came to you, whatever people would like to think how that came mm. to you, it doesn't matter. It came to you and yep. people are resonating with it. So yeah. is, do you think that is related to this time of pandemic? Are people just desperate for connection with nature? I honestly do not know. I think people are desperate to have a connection with nature. We've seen, at least in the UK, at least where I live, so many more people going outdoors, especially when we were during lockdown and the only thing you could do to get outside of your house was to like 
go outdoors for exercise, walking in the woods or walking on the trails, I saw so many more people than ever before. And I loved it. So I think that a lot more people reconnected with nature this year. And perhaps that's made them curious about other ways they could connect with nature and and what they can learn, how they can benefit from connecting with nature. Yeah, it is fascinating. I must say, I I find that there is these five plane trees in the middle of Mm. the circus in Bath. Yes. And they definitely have some kind of thing going on like in my in my book map of shadows they are a portal into another world and I feel I've walked there at night with the wind and I just feel like whoa this this place is has something and in fact it was constructed uh, in the same dimensions as Stonehenge and I don't know I talking woo woo there's all kinds of strange (laughs) things in the world far more than we we, we can see but I do I definitely feel something with those plane trees do you know Mm. anything about Plane trees are they? I know yew trees are spiritual, aren't they? In many yes, they are. cultures, but what about plane trees? I don't know anything about plane trees from a spiritual perspective, and I I don't have any in my area, so I don't know. Ah, you have to come to Bath and talk to these ones. Yes, yes, I will. <laughs> but um, it's interesting because I also love what you've done with your career. So obviously, you have made decisions along the way, and you've pivoted and. I'm interested with your podcast because you had this more businessy focus and then you've pivoted into this more nature focus. And I know that many people listening, authors, feel that they become trapped by a brand. Like hmm. they maybe they've maybe they have written 10 uh, sci-fi novels and then they go, Do you know what? I just don't want to do this. I want to write romance or I want to write nonfiction about trees or whatever. Mm. How do you pivot your brand but continue to <laughs> serve an audience <laughs> while also moving forward? <laughs> I've done this so many times. I feel like I'm a master of pivoting right now. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> because before it was a business mindset podcast, I I podcasted about social media. Whoa, that is crazy. Yeah. So my thing used to be social media for authors, social media for like coaches and holistic entrepreneurs. Then I changed to mindset. Then I changed to the nature stuff. So for me, it was almost like letting go of an old identity and stepping into a new one. But the problem was each time that I pivoted, I didn't know what that new identity was. I didn't know where I was going. I just knew that the old thing was not my thing anymore and I needed to do something differently. And honestly, it was my podcast that helped me to do that. Each time I just thought, I'm going to talk about whatever I want in my podcast and we'll see where this goes. And the last time when I was shifting from business mindset to the nature stuff, that was what I did. And I remember changing the intro to my podcast and saying, look, guys, this is changing. I don't know where it's going. I'm just going to talk about stuff and I hope you join me for the journey. And I've pivoted so many times and people stick with me. Obviously, some people drop off because they're not interested in the nature stuff, but I'm shocked by the number of people who have been following me from my old social media days and they're still with me today and that they followed me through all these changes. But it's the podcast and just allowing myself to talk about whatever I wanted and seeing where that went and being willing to see where that went and just taking it one week at a time. That was what made it easier. It's interesting because obviously I've started this second podcast because I felt like I, it's such a different angle mm-hmm. that it needs to be separate. Mm-hmm. But like you said, it's about allowing yourself to, to do something. And, and so you think people have 
is there a, a thread? I guess the thread is you. <laughs> but but the, even when you talked about social media, was there a sort of through line? I mean, social media, I was doing social media for business and then that changed into business mindset. And so that was, that was logical. I think the only kind of illogical shift that I did was from business mindset to personal development through nature and outdoor adventures. However, I'm still talking about personal development and mindset stuff. So that was the common thread that helped me shift from business mindset to personal mindset and personal growth, but from a nature perspective. So what do you think will happen next? Do you see mm. where your where you will go next? Obviously, I'm re- re- this audience is very interested in the books. Yeah. So you've managed to write books in these very different niches mm. under the same name. So yeah. do you feel like you have more to write in the trees and nature niche or are you looking towards a different? That is an excellent question. And this is something that I keep going back to all the time. And I know I asked you about using different names for fiction and nonfiction. I feel really uncomfortable that I'm moving much towards a nature niche and outdoors and walking and outdoors adventures niche. And I've got these four business mindset books. It feels like a disconnect. And I know I'm going much more into a nature and outdoors focus. So that's definitely where things are going. And I feel like I'm leaving the business mindset stuff behind. So I don't, I don't know what to do with those. <laughs> and I well, just updated them. Yeah, stick, a, stick an initial in the middle and yeah. put them onto something else. <laughs> Have you considered that? You said, yeah, I think you started off saying you didn't necessarily want to do that, but that mm-hmm. might make sense. It might make sense. But then I feel like I'm going to have to market that pen name. And I'm not sure how much effort I want to put into those books anymore because I really am shifting my focus. So I'm at this point right now where I don't know what to do with those books. And it's a strange point to be at because I had this plan this year to relaunch all four of them and I've already relaunched three out of the four. So it's, uh, what do I do with that project? Yeah, I know what you mean. So my book, Career Change, which was my very first book in 2007, Mm. and then I rewrote it in 2012. And I have not still not recorded the audiobook for it because every time I look at it I go I have to update it and yeah. I don't want to because yeah. that's not me anymore mm-hmm. and what I would say is I don't market that book at all and it sells oh, five good. copies a year so in the end <laughs> if we don't take care of our backlist it yeah. dies anyway I guess it does and the interesting thing was i Amazon ads have been doing so well for my tree book. So I thought from a business perspective, if I update all these business mindset books and I get Amazon ads going for them and I have a guy now that does my ads for me, he's really affordable and he does great work, he can make those sell and then I won't have to do too much about me and and they can just sell. They're not selling. Mm. Uh, They're not selling as well as the first editions were five years ago when that was the focus of my business. So I don't know. They might just go away at some point because, or they might just, go on the, I don't know, archive list of my back list. <laughs> I, I don't know, but, but that's definitely not where I'm going. And I, my focus is very much on nature and outdoors adventures and travel in the outdoors. Yeah, I think sometimes, especially with nonfiction, because a lot of it does date mm. much more than fiction, really. It's do I want to continue with that? Because again, if we put, we talked about putting personal stories into mm. our books, you have also changed and suddenly what was a personal story a decade ago is no longer the same person. Yeah, absolutely. 
So the, the updates that I did this year are very relevant because I just updated them this year. But five years from now, if I don't touch them, I'm going to be a totally different person, especially the pace I'm changing and evolving. Mm. <laughs> Who knows where I'm going to be in five years? Yeah. So perhaps the message for people is really to sometimes you just let it go. Mm. Yeah. And move on. Yeah. And that can be hard, especially if mm. people are making money. But it's like you said about not choosing to do any coaching when that was the yeah. easy money. You've let that go, right? I did. I did, which is why I don't know why I persisted with this project of re-releasing those books this year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny. That's good. It's interesting. And I, I love hearing about the way you're exploring things and changing things. So tell people where they can find you and your books and your podcast online. So my website is hollywharton.com and that's holly like the tree, W-O-R-T-O-N.com. And that's got everything. It's got the central hub for my podcast. I've got links to my books, links to my social media. I mostly hang out on Instagram. Yeah, that's about it. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Holly. That was great. Thank you for having me. So I hope you found the interview with Holly useful and an interesting insight into how we have both changed. Even as the seasons shift again into winter, we recorded it in August in the summer and now we're in the winter and we're back in lockdown. (laughs) But just to think about what can you discard as part of the old you? And how can you step towards what you truly want? Do you know what that is yet? Or do you need to set aside time to seek it, as both I think Holly and I are doing uh, in terms of our sort of pivots? So definitely check out Holly's books and her podcast, Into the Woods. And she has some recent solo shows on being a multi-passionate creator, which we both are for sure, how getting outdoors can help release blocks and more. So next week, I'll be doing my solo show on artificial intelligence and how technology is going to change, I guess, the next decade. I really do feel like there's so much going on. There's real convergence of a lot of technologies. My last show on this was July 2019, which seems a long time ago. And that was on nine ways that artificial intelligence will disrupt authors and publishing in the next 10 years. And I was going to just do an update on the various categories, but I'm actually going to reposition the whole thing because it's very daunting to keep track of. Every time I look at the news, which is pretty much every day about the AI stuff, it has changed. Things move on so fast, which is why I haven't done an update, because I feel like it's changed again. And I've been trying to wrangle a huge amount of material. So that's why I'm concentrating on for this next week and I'm committing to getting out that's why I'm announcing it now I just force myself to get this out but I'm very excited and I hope you'll listen in next week so happy writing and I'll see you next time thanks for listening today I hope you found it helpful you might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.